0: you'll be happy to know that the sermon is not going to focus on the gospel text today with the um, beheading of John the Baptist and the dancing daughter and all those kind of things. Um, <laughs> we are beginning a, we're gonna focus today on the epistle reading out of the book of Ephesians. And we're starting a new series today um, that we're calling Resurrection People. And we're gonna look specifically at this letter to the Ephesians as we follow the lectionary. and. Uh, Um, This letter is so beautiful. It's probably one of my favorite books in the entire Bible is the book of Ephesians and it's Paul's letter. And there's so much in it about identity, about our identity as the people of God. And not only identity, but also how identity forms us and shapes who we are. So there's so much about how we live and what we love and who we are in the book of Ephesians that's so profound and so important. And I wanna make a suggestion today. I'm gonna make a suggestion that, we are shaped, that who we are is shaped by what we love. That what we love shapes who we are, that that who we are, that everything about us comes from a center, it comes from a place, it comes from what the scriptures call the heart, the cardia, the center or the core of who we are. That That what we love, what we give our lives to, what we worship shapes everything. So how we think about ourselves and the world comes out of this place how we live, our behavior, how we treat other people, everything comes from what we love, the core of who we are. And I don't think it just comes from what we think. We live in a culture that's so centered on um, the intellect. And we kind of think that we can change people if we give them enough information, or we change their mind, that, that we think that that's really the way to bring about change. But I don't think it's just what we think. And I think a good analogy for this is music. So many of you are musicians in some way or another, and and music, like you can't teach somebody to be a musician and be a successful musician by having them just sit in a classroom and learn music theory, can you? Like that's wonderful, it's great, musicians will tell you that that's important, but without practice, without putting your hand to an instrument, without actually learning and putting in processes, that knowledge of theory isn't anything, right? It's not just about what we think. There is something about what we love and who we are. There's something we can't fully explain. Formation happens through our physicality, through our mental energy, and perhaps something even deeper than that, what we give ourselves to. In a similar way, who we are is shaped by what we give our lives to, what we worship, what we love. Today in Ephesians chapter one, Paul begins this letter. He gives this simple greeting at the beginning and then he starts our passage today and he starts with worship. So he says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any conversation about identity in Christ begins with worship. Why? Well, because Christianity affirms that if a human being is anything, we are a worshiping thing. That at the very center of who we are, who we were created to be, we are a worshiping thing. We're created to worship. Another way to say that is we're created to love. We are worshipers, we are lovers. That's who human beings are. That's who we're created to be. And we're created to worship and love God. But often what happens is when we turn from God, we worship and we love other things because that's who we are. We're worshipers, we're lovers, right? So we find those other things to love. Human beings were created to worship. We're created to love. The Christian story says human beings were created to worship God. We often turn to counterfeit things for worship, and yet God never gives up on us. He never gave up on us. He died for us. He rose again for us and is leading us into what it means to be true worshipers and lovers in the way that he's created us to be. That's our story. So Paul begins with worship. The very first statement is worship, worship of God, okay? And then he walks through all the things that God in Christ has done for us. So the first word he says is God chose, God chose. So beginning with worship, Paul then says, God chose us from the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So the goal, the end, the point that human beings have always been pointed towards is to be holy. Well, that sounds like this big church word theological word. It's actually not a big word. It's only four letters, but, but it, it's kind of packed with a lot of things. But this, this idea of holy is different. It's set apart. It's unique. That we were created to be holy and to be different, to reflect who God is. That's always been the goal of humanity, that we are to reflect to all of creation who God is. We're to be set apart. We're, we're to be different. And it says he has predestined us, for adoption to sonship or to daughtership, uh, you can say there too, but. We can't unpack this, this idea of predestined us all today, all the philosophical implications today. God predestined us through Jesus Christ before anything else. Before we sinned, before anything happened, we were predestined for adoption. The important thing I want us to hear in that today is that this idea that in Christ, we were known from the foundation of the world, that God chose us before there was anything, that he calls us, there's something beautiful about that. Let's talk for a minute about the context in which Paul is writing. So he's writing to this city called Ephesus. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman world at this point. So you had Rome, you had Alexandria and Egypt, you had Antioch, and you had Ephesus. And Ephesus dominated all the trade across the uh, Aegean coastline. So all trade that came through came through Ephesus and its harbor hosted ships from throughout the Mediterranean. It was also connected by roads to all the major manufacturing centers and the agricultural centers. So Ephesus was this really important city. It was this super cosmopolitan city of the world. It also had a 25,000 seat theater which at that time was incredible, it was magnificent. It had a triple, this theater had a triple arched gateway and around it was a retail space. So you had this mixed use, like um, the entertainment and retail district that was going on here in the first century in Ephesus. It was this magnificent city and there were about a hundred shops along the square in Ephesus. In this square, you could buy the latest clothing fashions from Rome You could buy Egyptian jewelry. You could buy purple cloth from Theatria, or you could buy exotic spices from the East, things that you couldn't get anywhere else because of how connected Ephesus was. So we're not just talking about Broadway and the honky tonks here, right? Like this, there's something here that's central to the whole culture, this place. And there's a church here. There's a church in this place in Ephesus, and this church, was planted by a man named Apollos. And Apollos um, was just the planter, but it says that Paul went there on his second missionary journey, and when Paul went there, they received the Holy Spirit. We can't fully explain how the church was planted and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit today, but, but there was something in that where Paul wasn't the planter, but he came in and really they flourished under Paul. A few years later, Paul wrote them and most likely he was in prison in Rome and he's further cultivating this growing faith of this church. One of the reasons maybe I love Ephesians is because it's written to a few year old church plant. <laughs> and I think about us in this, uh, in this season and in this place and um, I think about what God might be saying to us through this. But this is the letter, this letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus is what we call the book of Ephesians. And Paul tells them that they are part of this grand story, this big story, that every conversion in their life of faith, every baptism, every hill, every valley, every prayer, every act of discipleship in every time and place is part of this big story that they're part of. And notice that Paul speaks of the triune God here. So if you read our passage again today, he weaves together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this triune God. And he says that God called us. This is so important in the life of faith that it is God who is the one who does the calling. God is always the one doing the calling, the one doing the forming, the one doing the shaping. We are worshipers, we are created to be lovers, but as we worship, as we love, we are being shaped by the great shaper, the great former. He is the one who calls us to worship in the first place. He chose us and it's not because of anything special that we did in our lives. He simply chose us out of his grace. So if you read this passage, it's like there's all these verbs in the passage, boom, 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 boom. And God is the subject of all of the verbs. He's the one who does all the action. God has done all of these things. The purpose of God's calling too is not just that we're part of the God club. It's not that God said you're chosen And so then we go, we're the chosen people. We're better, we're separate from everybody else. We're um, part of this God club, this exclusive thing. No, we are chosen for a reason. We're chosen to invite and to spread the love and grace of God to a broken world. And this was the call of Abraham and the children of Israel from the beginning, that Israel was blessed and called not to keep it to themselves, but to be a blessing to all of the world. Okay, so he chose us in him or in Christ. And that means he sees us and Jesus together. And because of what's been done in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted, Paul says. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But but these words here are interesting. He uses the verbs chose, destined, and predestined. Now, all these words are really similar, but also slightly different. So God chose us means he notices us, identified us and intentionally chooses us. Okay, that's this verb for chose. Second, that choosing does something inside of us. The choosing of God changes us. It forms who we are. It changes our destination. That's this idea of predestined. That choosing has now become a place that we're pointed to. We're headed towards a destination. The word destined derives from the noun for boundary in Greek. God marks out a space for you. He's pointed you to live a certain kind of life. He's created you to be a kind of thing in the world, a blessing in the world. You are called into a specific kind of life. It's not just that you've been chosen to feel good about yourself. Even though we do feel good about ourselves, there's something affirming of humanity in Christ choosing us. But it's not just for that reason. You're destined to live a life in Christ that is a life of wholeness and fullness and blessing to the world. Today, if you fly out of an airport in Greece, Greece, the same word that is used here for destined, the word prōrismos, will show up on your gate at the airport. And I don't know if you got those pictures today. Yeah, okay. So you'll see here, I'm not sure, yeah. Yeah, so that word parismos is up there. <laughs> I think it's right here, yeah. Um, and that's like your destination. So the same in modern Greek, they use that same word for you are predestined. You are predestined if you fly out of Greece and fly to a flight going to Nashville. I don't think there's any direct flights from Greece to Nashville. Um, I don't know why there would be. But, uh, but if you are and it says destination Nashville, you are predestined for Nashville. <laughs> you are predestined for that place. Even today, we see that kind of word. Our destination is to be children of God. We've been chosen and we've been pointed in that direction of that different kind of life. Later in the letter, Paul addresses some serious issues that are going on in this community. So he talks about lying, theft, bitterness, rage, slander, malice, sexual impurity, greed, and intoxication. So this church isn't perfect, right? (laughs) They've got some challenges, but. Paul doesn't start the letter by addressing their behavioral issues. He starts the letter by addressing their identity, who they are in Christ, who God has called them to be and what he has done for them. So my question today for us is, who are you? Do you know who you are? Before we ever talk about behavior, we have to talk about identity. We have to talk about what we were created for. And the first image that Paul uses to capture their identity is adoption. And this metaphor would have been so poignant in the Roman world at this time for a bunch of reasons, because children were not really highly valued in this culture. In fact, they were disregarded, they were often cast aside. One place where we see this is in the old Roman story of Oedipus Rex. Anybody ever heard of that or heard that, right? This old Roman story where the king and queen of Thebes are going to kill their child. And the reason why is because an oracle has told them that um, this child is going to cause them great harm, okay? So they tell their servant to do it for them. So they're they're too chicken. They won't do it themselves. They don't want to do it themselves. So they ask their servant to do it, tell their servant to kill the child, Um, the child doesn't, or the servant doesn't wanna do that either. So instead, the servant just takes the child and leaves the child out in the elements. Um, And this was seen in this culture as leaving the child out for the gods to take care of, okay? This was really common practice, unfortunately, at this time, this practice of exposure. So what happens in that story is a shepherd finds the child and the child is eventually raised by Polybus, the king of Corinth. But this story of Oedipus Rex would have been well known in Ephesus. In fact, they probably would have seen a play about it in the great theater, 25,000 seat theater. And this idea of exposing a child is so strange to us and it should be, it's awful and it's horrific, but it wasn't a strange picture for the Ephesians. They knew this well. Exposure of a rejected child was common practice. And actually what happened is a newborn child would be born and would be placed at the father's feet The father in Roman culture was seen as really an extension of the emperor to the local house and also seen as a god in some way, the head over that household, the god of that household. And the father had a choice. Um, If the father accepted the child, he would bend down and hold the child. And that was a symbol that he was accepting that child. But if he wasn't happy with the way a child looked, a birthmark or a defect, maybe it was a girl and he wanted a boy. He could just simply turn his back and walk away. And that was the sign that the child was to be taken and left for the gods to tend to. It's an awful practice. It's a horrible practice. And we know that in Ephesus, in the first century, there may have been some in the church who had been left by their fathers, who had been rejected. Um, At night in Ephesus, as you walked the Market Square or as you passed by the garbage dump, you could hear the cry of babies who'd been left. Some would out of economic opportunity, they would rescue the babies. So they would go and they'd take care of the babies and raise them to be a slave or a prostitute. In fact, that got to be such common practice that a few decades later, an Ephesus doctor named Saranus authored a manual titled, How to Recognize the Newborn That is Worth Rearing. The main thrust of that book is, all right, if you find a child, you have to determine whether this child will give you economic benefit if you choose to raise them or not. So many slaves would grow up in Ephesus And they'd walk the streets and they wouldn't know their parents. And you can imagine what would go through their head as they walk the streets and they're thinking, is that my father? Is that my mother? They kind of look like me. Is that the one who rejected me? And it's certain among early Christians that there were slaves who had been dumped as children, placed on the garbage heap, abandoned in the cold. cold. It is in this culture that Paul reminds the church You have been adopted, not out of economic benefit, not because God has some like self, um, is trying to benefit himself in adopting you, but simply because the creator of the universe has chosen you. Not because you're the best of the best, but simply because he loves you with all of his heart. And Paul is specific that the God who adopted you is the creator God. Not just some vague deity, not a flighty deity like the Roman gods, but this specific God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ has adopted you. Jesus is the center. He is the one who loves you and accepts you and rescues you. So you think about the old song, Jesus loves me this I know, for Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells me so, right? Little ones to him belong. They're weak, they're vulnerable, but he is strong the God who rescues. Even in that weak state of desperation, being left in the elements, he picks us up by his strength. How do you think that hit this church in Ephesus? How do you think this image of adoption spoke to them? Paul is saying, your identity is no longer formed by the father who turned his back on you, but the God who took you in. Your defining reality, and this goes to us today, is not the rejection that you've experienced, no matter how painful those experiences are. They're real, but that's not our defining reality. Your defining reality is not in how your earthly parents treated you or how they left you or how you never seem to live up to their expectations or receive their approval. It is not the friend or lover who cut you off. That's not your defining reality. Your defining reality is not in your success or lack of success at work. It's not in how you've built or maintained your home or what society says you should be like. That's not your defining reality. Your identity is in the God who picked you up and brought you home. We love because he first loved us. That's the story that forms us. I want us to see too in this, the difference between how the Roman gods operated or seemed to have operated and how the God who is the father of Jesus operates. So if you think about the Roman gods, if any of you ever studied like Roman mythology or Greek mythology, um, the Roman gods were fickle. They had a lot of human characteristics. They were blown about by whims. So that was the idea if you left a child then it was really up to the whims of the gods, whether they would be taken care of or not. They're fickle, they go back and forth, they're self-preserving. And the father was kind of an extension of that, that he was kind of based on his whims and what he wanted out of a child. Then as the child was placed in that elements, the Romans didn't believe they were actually killing the child. They believed they were just handing them over to the gods. So if this is how the gods work, it would be reasonable to assume that these children didn't deserve to live because most of them died. Yet this God who is the father of Jesus Christ is different than all of the Roman gods. He is the one who truly rescues, the one who chooses. And this is why it's so important that we recognize that our adoption as sons and daughters of God is not based on anything we did. It's not based on anything that's just like uh, a talent or a skill that we have or something that we've earned. It's not because of our stature or our ability to have a return on investment. It's not because we lack defect or birthmark. Why is that so important for us? Well, because I think many of us go around, walk around, wondering if we really are lovable or valuable because of fill in the blank, because of something about us something we're insecure about, something we feel shameful about. So we speak to ourselves, we have these tapes that play in our head where we walk around saying things like, well, if I could just overcome this thing, I can really be who I'm supposed to be. I can really be valuable. And in doing that, what we do is we basically are worshiping counterfeit gods who are flighty. We're saying that, well, really, in order to be valuable in society or to my, um, to my parents or to you know, the world around me, that I've gotta do this thing or this thing or this thing and that's worshiping a flighty or counterfeit God. But God chooses us out of his unconditional love. He calls us in our weakness, in our vulnerable state. He sees all that we are, and he calls us worthy of adoption, and that's all that we need. This image of adoption is really significant to me because many of you know our story um, that our little girl Lucy is adopted. And, uh, through this, uh, we've kind of been living and walking through Lucy's story. There, there is something I'm convinced in adoption that is, is pretty holy and sacramental. Um, now, I think that's, that's true of all, of all children, of all parenting, I think. But I do think in adoption, we've seen this image, this image that's um, spoken about in the book of Ephesians in a powerful way. Now, whenever I talk about our story, sometimes I catch myself that I talk about it as this sacramental and beautiful and spiritual kind of moment. And yet parenting is not, does not always feel beautiful and sacramental and uh, <laughs> supernatural in any way. In fact, this week, uh, Lucy, we really were committed that we wanted to get Lucy a, a toy. we This week, we were going to do that, and it was really initiated by this Build-A-Bear sale that was going on. Did anybody see this that happened? Okay. So we saw that Build-A-Bear was doing this pay-your-age to get a -A Build-A-Bear, which the younger your child is, the better deal that is. So I'm like, we got a five-year-old child, we're going to pay five bucks for a -A Build-A-Bear. We're doing this, right? So we get up early and just did not anticipate uh, how many people would think this was a good deal, okay? Okay. So all around the world, all around the country, they had to shut down all the lines <laughs> because too many people were, were going to these, this Build-A-Bear thing. So we showed up at the mall and the, you know, the line is from Build-A-Bear all the way out through the food court and you know everything. And, and we're going, okay, uh, Lucy, we can't really do this. And so I'm trying to think of what else we could get her. And then I made a big parenting mistake and I took her to Target and I set her loose at the toy aisle in Tar- toy aisles in Target. And um, she was really built up for a nice toy and told her she could only get a $10 toy and not a $20 toy, and she had a meltdown, had a fit, right? (laughs) And so uh, when I talk about how beautiful and wonderful adoption is and parenting is, know that it's also very real, okay? There's real life stuff that happens also. Um, For those of you who have not heard our story, we have an open adoption so Lucy's birth mother will always be part of our lives. Um, we were in the delivery room when Lucy was born, which a lot of adoptive parents don't get to do that. And honestly, when we were preparing for adoption, I was a little afraid. I, I didn't know. Um, I, I feel weird and selfish for saying this, but I thought, well, I'd be able to bond or love a child in the same way who's adopted than one who comes from my DNA or whatever, and wondered about that and and yet reminded myself that even if I, I don't feel that sense of bonding or connection that I could choose to love this child, that it's choice, it's a decision to make this, and that sounds really selfish as I say it out loud, but it's how I felt at the time. But really early on, I felt myself begin to attach to Lucy even before she was born. We saw her little face on a 3D sonogram and my heart is melted, right? Um, Rachel, uh, her birth mother said that uh, she would, as soon as I would enter the room and start speaking, that Lucy would calm down, right? That there was already this kind of attachment there. And my grandmother wrote me a letter about this time to remind me of the story of Joseph in the Bible, Jesus' adopted father. Um, and if you talk about somebody who didn't know what was coming and adopting, <laughs> that would be Joseph, right? Joseph is an interesting example because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells the genealogy of Jesus from the very beginning, but he traces his lineage through Joseph, his adopted father. That doesn't seem to make sense because Joseph is not the biological father. But when Jesus stepped into our world, he not only took on the human experience, he took on Joseph's lineage, okay? So when Lucy was born, I will say, for me, it was love at first sight. For us, it was love at first sight. And uh, um, I can't explain it, but there was no doubt in that moment that she is our child. There was just no doubt. Now, that's not true of every adoptive parent, and there's nothing wrong with other experiences, but that was our experience. Uh, from, t- from the time Lucy was born um, then, after that, we had a weird situation because it took us 17 months before our adoption was finalized. Okay, so she was born, she was in our house, she's with us. We knew that she was our child fully and completely. And yet we had 17 months until it was actually finalized officially. And that's really late. And that was really no choice of our own. We went through three different attorneys. We had these complicating factors because we went across state lines. But finally, after 17 months, the judge declared her to be Lucy Rachel Sharp. Why don't we show a picture of Lucy birth first, if you have that? Yeah, so this is the love at first sight moment when Lucy was born, okay? Um, and then 17 months later, let's show this one. So this is Lucy when she was adopted. Doesn't that judge look like he's so excited to be there? <laughs> and as much as I have felt this powerful connection to Lucy, that I, we had no doubt that she was ours there were still, we were living in a world that were full of things that seemed to challenge the fact that Lucy was our child, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, the entire time we had to carry around these guardianship papers for those 17 months, declaring that we were temporary guardians of Lucy. Now, I don't know, that maybe shouldn't have frustrated me, but it did. (laughs) Every time we had to give the doctor, say we are her temporary guardians, that was just so uh, maddening to me. We'd take these papers to our doctor, we had to submit them with our taxes and say we are temporary guardians of her. And it was these constant reminder that our relationship is different. It's maybe not fully the same as being parents. And then there were other reminders. So we get this thing a lot now is people will look at us and someone will say, she looks just like you right? Oh, you go into a grocery store and somebody will go, she looks just like you. (laughs) And and, and we laugh because we know that that, you know, I mean, it's not really uh, anything genetic or anything like that. Um, But it is kind of a reminder to us, every time we hear that, there's a joy to that, but there's also kind of a pain to go, our relationship is different here. Sometimes early on, people would say silly things. So they would say, are you ever going to have any children of your own? That's what they'd say kind of reminder of, huh, um, she is a child of our own. <laughs> we feel this sense that some don't see adoption as quite as legitimate as biological parenting. Yet we know and we knew that our adoption is real, that Lucy is our child. And the longer we live into it, the more real it feels. That we chose her, that her birth mother chose us, that we're not temporary guardians that we really were and are her parents and she truly is our little girl. And we'll never run from our story. We never sit back and pretend that the adoption is a secret little part of her past. We celebrate it, that this is a beautiful story, an amazing story of choosing love all the way around. And the world, the reason why I tell this story is the world is full of so many things that will challenge our identity as God's adopted son or daughter. There's so many other stories that will push us to go, well, I don't know if that's really your primary identity. I don't know that that's really your defining reality, right? There's gotta be something else. There are plenty of other stories that will push us to worship or to love something other than God. And I wish it wasn't that way. I wish we lived in a world where we all loved and accepted each other. I wish we could all see the inherent value like Jesus does with each of us. But many people will treat you in the world like your value is just based on what you can produce or what you can do for them, what you can give them or how you look. Some will use your past against you. Magazines and televisions will, and television will tell you that you're not thin enough or you're not good looking enough or you're not rich enough. But we live into a different story and that's what we do when we're here Sunday after Sunday, as we say, we're part of a different story. The story that we're adopted and chosen and destined into a family. So not only are we chosen by God, but we're brought into the family of God. We are part of this family and that matters that you're adopted into the family of this God. So it's not just that a distant God in the sky looks down and smiles at you and likes you. He's adopted you into a family. This God has enacted his life by what Paul calls this word redemption. This word regem- redemption, which means he stepped into our world to free us from slavery to sin, to free us from the counterfeit identities that have held us down. So if you think about the, not only the um, people in Ephesus who were rejected, but specifically the slaves, that Jesus bought their freedom, that he bought our freedom, that he redeemed us. And for Paul, this idea of redemption is pointing back to the story of Israel, that Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt and brought through the waters of the Red Sea. And in Christ, there's a new Exodus, a new Passover. By his blood, we have been forgiven. And then in verses 11 through 14, he says that this adoption and this redemption, this identity that we have as part of a story is headed somewhere. And he uses this word inheritance. We've been given an inheritance. When I used to read that as a kid, I remember that we used to hear, I don't know how we got this, but talking about you're gonna get a lot of jewels in your crown when you get up to heaven. You're gonna get all this gold and all these things. And so um, the way of Jesus kind of became about getting more stuff for ourselves in the future life, (laughs) which doesn't seem really like the way of Jesus. But this inheritance here, if you look at the rest of the context and you look at Paul's letter, the inheritance is God's world made right that we can trust that there is a future day when everything will be restored, when things will be put back together, when things will be made new. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the deposit of that inheritance. So, and as God forms us and shapes us out of and from our true identity, we live as signposts as this deposit of God's new world. At church on Sundays, we gather for worship and We're not just here to transfer inspirational content. I wanna say that pretty clearly. If that was the goal, (laughs) if we were just trying to get the best teaching or the best content or whatever, we'd say, everybody stay home. I'm gonna send you the best preachers that I know. (laughs) We're just gonna watch those and we're gonna get inspirational content. But that's not what we do here. That's not the goal, it's just simply that. Um, Also, we're not just here to hang out with our friends. If that was the goal, we should all just go have brunch together every week. (laughs) Forget the liturgies and the sermon and the table. We'll just go hang out together. Now, we hope that church is inspirational. We also believe that the best place to hang out with your friends is in community around the table, okay? So those things matter, they're important. But those things are not our first priority. At church, every Sunday, we worship God and we worship God as we enact the drama of God's story. We are formed by the fact that we are loved by God from the beginning and we are created to love Him and to serve Him and to worship Him. Many of you have noticed probably the the bowl of water at the entrance in our gatherings. We've talked about this a little bit. Um, It's this opportunity as, and the church has done this historically, Um, As you walk into the worship gathering and as you leave, you have the opportunity to put your hand in the water as a reminder, as a tangible practice, to remind yourself that your identity in Christ, your baptismal identity is the most important thing in life. It is your defining reality. So as we enter into worship, we're reminded of that. As we leave worship, we're reminded of that. This is a physical practice. It's not just an intellectual practice. And I think those physical practices really matter. In fact, some of you know that um, when I pray, and we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that I make the sign of the cross. Um, Some of you have asked questions about that. You've kind of wondered about that. And uh, this is something that historically has been done as a physical practice, as a physical reminder of living into who God is in our lives and into our identity. I wanna do a whole class sometime on the sign of the cross and why we do the sign of the cross. Some people get a little freaked out and they go, well, that's so Catholic. Like, like why would we do something so Catholic? Well, the resource that actually has been the most profound to me on making the sign of the cross is from Martin Luther, right? who is the Protestant reformer. And the second one is from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor way, way later in the 1930s and 40s, right? So, so this practice is really important. In fact, I've taught my daughter, I heard this phrase that if you wanna teach your children about the Trinity, the best thing to do is not to teach them about the Trinity, but it's actually to teach them <laughs> that whenever they pray, to make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my daughter has been doing that. And so as she prays, um, we've noticed she's asked to pray at dinner and she ends and she says, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And she doesn't quite have the order down, right? So she just starts pecking around, right? <laughs> in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And it is so beautiful. And to know that this is a practice that's actually forming her. I don't think it's just about communicating intellectual things. I think there's something in the gathering and in the practice that we do over and over again that begins to shape our loves, that shapes who we are. And at the table, when we, when we come to this table, we're dining with the king, the lord of the world. James K.A. Smith says that this is a meal that retrains our deepest and most human hungers. So when we come to this table week after week after week, we are retraining our hungers. We're retraining our loves. We're saying, go this way, not that way. <laughs> we know that we're made for worship. We know that we're made to love. And we're so drawn by other things to fulfill our hunger and our need for worship. We're drawn to consumerism, to nationalism, to people-pleasing, to all different kinds of things. And at this table, we say, it is the triune God who feeds us and makes all things new. As we close today, here's my hope today that we hear. I hope that you hear today that God has chosen you, no matter what anything else in the world says. Those other messages that you've been given throughout your life or you hear about yourself, that when we go to the shopping mall and we see all the perfect people (laughs) and we get this impression that if we just buy these things, then it's gonna make us better, that all of those messages that we receive are are nothing. that they're all fading, they're all empty, that your defining reality is God chose you. Also know today, God has freed you. If you think about what that would mean to those who were rescued, the slaves who were rescued, also think about what it means to us today. We're freed from human expectations. We're freed from guilt and shame. We're freed from sinful patterns, we're free. And then also know that this identity is pointing towards an inheritance, a world restored. And that begins with us. That new world begins with us as we are formed by the Holy Spirit. Just as we close today, um, after Lucy's adoption, we received a package of documents in the mail from our adoption attorney after it was all finalized and everything. And if a legal document can be beautiful, this legal document was beautiful. The last page is, and I'm gonna read something, a portion of this to you. The last page is a formal declaration of our rights and privileges as parents and of all of Lucy's rights and privileges as our child. And I wanna invite you for a minute to close your eyes. I've changed this a bit to reflect not Lucy and our relationship, but the God who has adopted you and your relationship to Christ. And I wanna read this over us today. It is therefore ordered, adjudged, and decreed by the court that the child, put your name in there, is hereby declared to be the lawfully adopted child of the petitioner, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the exclusive care, custody, nurture, education, and control of said child is vested exclusively in petitioners, and henceforth the relationship of parent and child, and all of the rights, duties, privileges, and other consequences of the natural relationship of parent and child shall exist between petitioner and said child, and that anything else that would claim to form the identity of said child are relieved and deprived of any and all rights to or over said child or her property, care, custody, or control. It is further ordered, adjudged, and decreed by the court that the name of the child shall be changed to child of God. It is so ordered. Lord, we thank you today for adopting us when we were far away, that you brought us in. And Lord, we thank you that that is our defining reality that we have been adopted, redeemed and sealed for that inheritance of a world made right. Lord, we recognize that there are so many other things that try to form and shape our identity. So many other things said about us or to us about who we are. May we be a people who know who we are and live out of that core. May we be shaped and formed. May our loves be retrained by who you are and by your Holy Spirit. We trust you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.